Half-Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan from 1989. Written and directed by Rob Hedden, who got his start working on MacGyver, and who jumped over to the Friday the 13th TV series. For those of you unfamiliar with this show, it had nothing in common with the movies except for the title. It was a series about two people who inherited a shop full of cursed antiques, that they had to recover after selling them off before they learned about the Adam's supernatural powers. Even though they weren't related, they were both produced by Frank Mancuso Jr., who decided that Hedden showed enough potential to do the eighth installment in the Friday the 13th movies after John Carl Beekler's ideas didn't pan out. Beekler wanted to bring back Lar Park Lincoln's Tina for a rematch with Jason in a mental hospital, but Lincoln's asking price was too high. Rather than recast, the studio went in an entirely different direction. Hedden wanted to get the series away from Crystal Lake. He thought it was implausible that people would keep coming back there after all of these murders. And he had two major ideas. One was Jason on a cruise ship, and the other was Jason winding up in Manhattan and going on a rampage. When it became clear that they couldn't afford to do a full movie set in Manhattan, even though this is the highest budgeted entry in the series, there's still only two days of location shooting in New York City. Most of it is done in Vancouver. Uh, the two concepts were combined. The result uh, disappointed at the box office, resulting in Paramount's decision to sell the rights to Jason to New Line Cinema, which will cause at least one major repercussion for the franchise, as we'll see in future episodes. The film stars uh, Jensen Daggett as Rennie. She's probably best known for this film, although she does have a few credits in the 90s as a day player on TV shows like Project Alf and The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Uh, Scott Reeves as Sean, another soap opera alum with roles on General Hospital, Days of Our Lives, The Young and the Restless, and Nashville. Barbara Bingham as Colleen Van Dusen, almost certainly best known for this film and Peter Mark Richman as Uncle Charles. Richman was a genre vet who passed away only recently, in January of 2021, and he had a number of credits, including Aben Sur on the 90s animated Superman series, and The Phantom on the 80s Defenders of the Earth series, as well as an episode of the original Twilight Zone called The Fear, and more guest roles than you can shake a stick at. Most people would probably recognize him as the unfrozen 80s businessman in the Star Trek TNG episode The Neutral Zone, not the unfrozen 80s businessman on Futurama, that's a completely different guy. But to me, he will always be secret agent Adam Chance from the MST3K classic Agent for Harm. The movie also features Saffron Hander Henderson excuse me, as J.J., She's gone on to a prolific career as a voice actor, dubbing the American version of Darkstalkers, Dragon Ball, Mobile Suit Gundam Wing, Saber Marionette J, Escaflone, and Inuyasha, as well as American cartoons like My Little Pony and X-Men Evolution. In addition, we have Martin Cummins as Wayne, who's currently in Riverdale as Tom Keller, and Vincent Craig Dupress as Julius. Sadly, not too many other credits for him. Uh, Charlene Martin features as Tamara, 
also probably best known for this film, and Kelly Hu features as her best friend Ava, who is another major voice actor with credits that include Phineas and Ferb and Young Justice, but she's also done quite a bit of work in front of the camera. She's probably most recognizable as Lady Deathstrike in the second X-Men movie. And rounding out the cast, we have Alex Diacon as the ship's hand who delivers, shall we say, Ralph-esque warnings of doom and destruction. Diacon is a perennial character actor who's been in everything from the beachcombers to Millennium to the chilling adventures of Sabrina. And Kane Hodder returns as Jason, marking his second appearance in the role and probably eclipsing his fame for the role of Billy Boy in Alligator 2 The Mutation. No, seriously, he's a genre legend, and I don't just say that because I'm pretty sure he could bench press me. This film opens not with Jason under the waters of Crystal Lake, but with a nameless DJ narrating a monologue about the terrors of New York City and the people who love it anyway. The theme music, a hair metal anthem called The Darkest Side of the Night, cuts in along with the credits. These credits are graphically a completely different style from all the previous movies, by the way. Um, they, they look very much more late 80s, early 90s, over a montage of the locations that will come into play later when the action of the film moves to Manhattan, or Vancouver doubling it in Manhattan. They're all beset with urban blight, crime, decay, and a callous indifference to human suffering that typified media portrayals of New York in the era. The city was suffering from a spiking crime rate that had gone on seemingly for decades, prompted by a number of causes, including overpopulation, a major budget crisis that affected government services, the homelessness crisis we've talked about in several other episodes about films in the 80s, a moral panic over drugs that was intended to punish Nixon's political enemies, but which had the unintentional side effect of emboldening and empowering organized crime, all of which was exacerbated by the arrival of co crack cocaine on the streets of New York over the course of the mid-80s. Basically, at this time in history, the city was seen as a cesspool, and while that's greatly exaggerated by the media, as well as by politicians like Nixon and Reagan, who enjoyed the authoritarian power that a crime wave allowed them to claim, it was also not untrue. The last shot of the montage, a scene of the Statue of Liberty, ends with the camera submerging into the waters and rising back out in, you guessed it, Crystal Lake. A pair of teenagers and a cabin cruiser are listening to the DJ, which makes sense, as Crystal Lake has always been said to be in New Jersey. It might require a powerful transmitter and a good radio, but this is not implausible. And making out. The young man Jim, played by Todd Caldecott, although he went by Todd Schaefer at the time, drops anchor and decides to spook his girlfriend Susie, played by Tiffany Paulson, by telling her the legend of Jason Voorhees, who drowned 30 years ago as a child in these very waters. Or, you know, 40 or maybe 50 years ago? Obviously, nobody's paying too much attention to all the time skips that have happened between all the previous sequels. This seems to be set contemporaneously to the era in which it was filmed, which can't be true given that Part 7 probably happened somewhere around the year 2000. That's not the only serious continuity, though, and I'm not talking about the complete abandonment of the Forest Green name change that happened uh, somewhere around Part 7. We see a flashback to Jason's death by drowning, and the kid looks nothing like Jason at all. 
The child we've seen in every previous version of the story had physical features that represented a caricatured version of hydrocephaly, a congenital condition that causes expansion of the skull before the growth plates harden. This is just some kid. In fact, it's the child of the film's editor, a young boy named Tim Merkovich. Now, I'd like to believe that this represents someone somewhere deciding that the use of a real physical condition as symbolic of quote-unquote monstrosity was ableist and outdated, but I really think they just didn't have the time and money to do the Savini-style facial prosthetics that made him so memorable in part one. While Jim tells the story, we see that the anchor has caught on a power cable in the waters below, and the resultant surge of electricity as it tears once again wakens Jason from his dead slumber. So possibly Tina's dad did re-kill him at part seven, at the end of part seven, and he needed a new source of power to reanimate? I mean, look, I'm probably thinking more about this than anyone who made the movie, but it's fun to speculate. Susie hears a noise and Jim goes to investigate, but instead he goes and retrieves a hockey mask and a fake knife from a secret hiding spot and uses it to prank her. She's upset, but honestly not nearly as upset as she should be, and so it falls to Jason to execute his revenge by donning the hockey mask after Jim discards it and murdering him with a convenient spear gun. Not with the spear, he shot that at Susie and missed. He rams the barrel of the gun through Jim's stomach. Susie tries to find a hiding place, but Jason grabs the spear and goes searching for her. There aren't many places to hide on a cabin cruiser, and he soon opens up the storage hatch on the bow to find her begging for mercy. Obviously, there's none waiting for her. Uh, originally, they planned to have him hurl her off the boat into the water, but apparently they were shooting at a time of year when it was freezing cold and dangerous, so instead he impales her through the chest. And then he apparently just stays on the boat. It's, I mean, that seems to be the implication for the rest of the film. We cut away and don't see what happens to him, but we next see that boat drifting into a harbor, and he's apparently still on board. So, apparently he does not decide to leave the boat. He just sort of hangs out, relaxes, gets used to being back on land again. We then jump to the next day and to the docks for what's presumably a river that feeds out of Crystal Lake onto the ocean, because that's really the only explanation we have for why a cruise liner could be departing from this location with a load of high school graduates and wind up in Manhattan. Apparently everyone on the cruise spotted this discrepancy, but none of them wanted to bring it up to the director. Colleen, one of the teachers at Lakeview High School, is bringing her prize English student Rennie to the docks for the cruise to New York that's being presented to the class as a graduation present from retired Admiral Robertson, played by Warren Munson. The Admiral owns the boat, and his son Sean is one of the graduating teens and Rennie's would-be boyfriend. Now, according to, the grad, uh, according to the deleted scenes, this was also the last graduating class of Lakeview, but they cut that probably because it doesn't really add anything to the story, but it does really seem like it's important that Jason is going after this particular group of teens, as we'll later see. There seems to be some sort of an angle that he's like almost a supernatural revenant. Uh, it's very different from the other movies, and it's very hard to keep that framed in mind, to be honest, despite the fact that the movie doesn't really make any sense unless you assume that there's some sort of a revenge motivation going on 
by Jason against these specific teens for being um, from Crystal Lake. Colleen gives Rennie an old fountain pen that she claims used to belong to Stephen King as a graduation present and says, if there's anybody that can make use of that pen, it's you. Yep, that's going in somebody's eye. There's a slightly odd vibe to this scene, by the way, that makes me wonder if someone wasn't playing either Rennie or Colleen or both with a queer subtext. Not that there's a romantic element between these two, but Colleen is coded to some degree as non-heterosexual through her dress, her hairstyle, and her mannerisms, and Rennie is presented as such a chaste character that she almost accidentally picks up queer coding as a result, simply because she doesn't seem to have any interest in heterosexual relationships with her putative boyfriend. The scene feels very much like an older gay woman recognizing something of herself in her student and wanting to advise her without quite knowing how. Uh, not much is made of it, but then again, not much is made of any of the subtext in this movie. Again, it's a movie that I don't feel really knows how to convey its ideas. Uh, Haddon was a first-time theater film director, and uh, I, he, he didn't go on to a lot of, of big things after this, and I think that you can see why uh, in, in his screenplay and his treatment of the film. The cruise prepares to get underway as Jim's boat drifts into the harbor, a sight which somehow instantly alerts one of the deckhands that Jason is on board and that he's going to jump from that ship to this ship and kill them all. Again, this particular installment leans heavily into the idea that Jason has a supernaturally motivated need for revenge against the teenagers of Crystal Lake over the death of his mother, but the idea is never properly set up, developed, or concluded, and as a result, it's sort of... Characters just sort of develop this mystic intuition about what Jason wants to do and how he's going to do it. And especially in this case of the deckhand, which makes it more than a little problematic that he's presented as vaguely non-specific foreign. But I mean, at least they're not a pending ableist slurs to his name this time. Rennie and Colleen head for the ship, which is the SS Lazarus and meet Rennie's Uncle Charles, the school biology teacher, who's a prickly sort and something of an overprotective parent to Rennie ever since her parents died in a car accident. Charles is worried about Jim and Susie, but Colleen brushes it off by suggesting they're probably just skipping the cruise to have sex, even though her, their cabin cruiser is literally about to crash into the dock nearby. I know Charles gets a lot of hate, and I don't want to suggest it isn't somewhat deserved given what we learn about him later, but I'll say this, he does seem to be reasonably concerned about his students' welfare, and he doesn't seem to have any ulterior motives for what he does in the movie. He's genuinely trying to take his responsibilities seriously, which is more than you can say for Colleen in this scene. Because that's the other thing, apparently she just brought Rennie along without asking her legal guardian, despite knowing that Rennie has a crippling fear of water. This seems to be a little bit thoughtless at best, even if there are good arguments to allow her to socialize more with her classmates. Charles clearly wants to argue, but they're too close to departure to send her back, and he reluctantly allows her and her dog Toby to board. 
Up on the bridge, the Admiral pressures his son Sean into launching the vessel, only to wind up berating him when Sean, a recent high school graduate with no maritime experience and no apparent interest in seamanship as a pursuit, doesn't get all the protocols exactly right. This is really, really telegraphing the theme of Sean's dad is a jerk, but as with a lot of the themes that these later Friday the 13th sequels develop, it doesn't really go anywhere because we're just going to see the Admiral get killed by Jason. Many of the plot arcs in these later movies are, and then they get killed by Jason. Sean leaves, uncomfortable, and bumps into the deckhand, who tells him, This voyage is doomed. Sean says, Yeah, tell me about it. Which feels a lot like Gen Z humor before Gen Z. We then see a brief montage of ocean activities, shuffleboard, skeet shooting, and dancing in an improvised disco lounge before Sean and Rennie find each other, and he gives her a necklace with a Statue of Liberty pendant on it as a graduation present of his own. I have to say, Rennie seems more uncomfortable than attracted to him. Again, the character feels very queer-coded in a none-too-subtle way, although that could just be Jensen Daggett's discomfort in front of the camera. Unfortunately, she's kind of stiff and stilted in the role. She doesn't give a very naturalistic performance. She seems again, very uncomfortable in front of the camera. Uh, it's, it's not one of my favorite lead performances in a Friday the 13th movie. Her uncle then approaches, and we see them framed through the lens of a video camera that then turns to show a young woman jamming on an electric guitar up on one of the conning towers. It's a very incongruous shot that lasts so long that you really wonder what is actually happening. Like, it almost feels like they have switched to a different movie and forgot to tell you. But then we see that it's actually teens JJ and Wayne playing around with their graduation presents. Honestly, graduation present is a more developed theme in this movie than what Jason is actually doing on the ship, I, I, I gotta say. Wayne is a film school geek, an archetype that would become ever more popular in movies as we move into the 90s, and we'll discuss this a lot, I think, when we get to movies like Scream, but the reason that this starts becoming more of a thing is more and more of the people making movies are themselves people who grew up watching movies as the rise of the video store made film much more accessible to the average person. Oh, and J.J. is an aspiring musician, in case you hadn't guessed, from the electric guitar. She wants to go down and play in the engine room, but Wayne is more interested in rich socialite Tamara, who J.J. warns him is bad news, a user and a tanker, and just generally awful. They split up, and we see Jason follow J.J. into the bottom of the ship. Back on deck, Charles tries to convince Rennie to let him put her off the boat and back on shore, but she insists that she came on her own. She wants to confront her fear of open water. He warns her that facing your fears isn't always the best way to get past them, which feels a lot like his own guilt talking once we learn that he's responsible for said phobia. Spoilers. But he relents when he sees that she's determined to go through with the cruise. Again, I can't in any way absolve him of his behavior with Rennie as a child, but he does seem to have learned from it and be trying to atone for it, at least, even if it results in him being overprotective. Down in the engine room, J.J. plays loudly enough for, to make it impossible for her to hear Jason approaching until it's too late. He grabs the guitar and more or less Pete Townsend's it into her head. That evening... 
Rennie gets dressed to join the group and sees a vision of a young boy at the porthole of her cabin submerged in water and begging for help. The vision fades, but Toby flees the room in terror. Again, it's, it's not really clear what's going on here. It's not clear whether Rennie has psychic abilities or if this is just someone that Jason is doing. Everyone sees him at this point, but she's too busy chasing her dog to stick around and find out. Meanwhile, in the ship's gym, Senior Julius is sparring with another fighter, and we learn through some clumsy exposition provided by observers Tamara and Eva that Julius is an undefeated boxer at the high school. As we discussed during Part 3, there's a distressing tendency in film in general for African-American men to be presented as paragons of physical power without any other real qualities to round out their character, which harkens back to slave-owning days when they were seen as little more than pack animals. This is a lingering prejudice that continues on to the modern day, and an even more distressing tendency in horror films for them to be presented as physically powerful solely so that the villain or monster can demonstrate his superior strength by defeating them. Basically, I'm saying that this scene absolutely telegraphs a Julian's versus Jason boxing match, and spoilers, but yeah, we're gonna get that. Tamara and Eva leave the group behind once Julius knocks out his opponent to find somewhere to snort cocaine together. Because this is the 80s, and during this era, cocaine is the drug of choice for the rich and well-connected, and Tamara is very much being coded as a secondary villain whose death we can root for, so of course she's going to be a drug user, and of course she is going to be a wealthy drug user who is insulated from the consequences of her actions. Ava looks a little bit uncomfortable with the idea, and I'll admit I don't fully understand why the two of them are hanging out together and presented as best friends when Tamara is presented as this huge hedonistic party girl and Eva seems to be bookish and shy. There's a mention of Tamara having a science project she still needs to present while she's on the cruise, Perhaps she's got a requirement or two left from graduation, and she's cozying up to a smarter student to get help. If that's the case, it's, it's not very well explained, but it, it does make a certain degree of sense. Rennie interrupts their cocaine session on her search for Toby, and although she seems magnificently disinterested in the hard drugs on board, or really anything else, again, she's not a very vividly drawn character, the two women nonetheless worry that she might tell on them. They've got bigger problems, though. Charles finds them just as they finish up, and he's clearly suspicious, even though he doesn't ever see the drugs. He informs Tamara that he wants to see her biology project immediately, on pain of not being allowed to depart with the others in New York. Oh, and Jason reminds everyone he's still in this movie by catching up with Julius's opponent as he recuperates from his boxing match in the sauna and forcing a hot rock into his abdominal cavity. I know this scene was censored by the MPAA, but even without the censorship, they do have the un uncut versions of the scenes as special features, and I feel like it would have had more intensity if he bludgeoned or burned him with the rock instead of literally shoving it into his body. This happens almost too quickly to give the viewer time to appreciate the terror of being hit with a burning hot rock. It's just, it goes in... And yes, it does burn him, but this would have killed him pretty much no matter what. It's a giant rock shoved into your abdominal cavity. I think that it would have been more horrific if he'd gotten beaten with it first, so that you would have seen the burns and the bruises. 
Later, Colleen and Rennie are up on decks catching up on the situation. Uh, just the situation in general, but their cruise so far. When Tamarick shoulder checks Rennie into the water, apparently to make sure she doesn't talk. Although as an intim- intimidation attempt, it seems a lot more like a spirited effort to murder the other woman. Rennie sees visions of a young Jason as she struggles to swim. He's grabbing her ankles and pulling her deeper into the water, but Sean dives in and saves her. Charles is very upset with Colleen, an entirely reasonable emotion given that he left the two of them together for five minutes and she nearly drowned, and starts to lead her away, but the deckhand interrupts to let everyone know they're doomed, and Rennie flees on her own. She goes to the bathroom to wash the salt water off her hands, and she sees the water that flows from the sink turning into blood, and a young Jason reaches out from the mirror once again, asking for help before disappearing. Again, this isn't ever really explained. I mean, certainly we've reached a stage of the series where protagonist has psychic powers isn't even particularly novel, let alone outrageous, but there's not any payoff to any of this the way there was in the previous installment. I do have a theory as to why that is, but we'll discuss that later when we get to that part of the movie. Back in Tamara's cabin, Charles demands to see her biology project, but instead she tries to ply him with champagne and strips down, tackling him onto the bed. He pushes her off. Again, for someone who's so roundly hated, he is probably the first authority figure we've seen in the series who wouldn't take advantage of a much younger woman. But it's too late. Wayne was filming the whole thing, and Tamara threatens blackmail. Wayne tries to use the opportunity to hit on Tamara, sort of a, hey, I did this thing that is going to probably get me in a lot of trouble and has made me an accomplice to blackmail, maybe we could hang out sometime? But she literally shoves him out of the room with a vague promise of meeting up with him later, and he realizes too late that he's been used. But instant karma arrives in the form of Jason, who shows up while Tamara's in the shower, Apparently the director did the scene nude first to try to put Charlene Martin at her ease, which seems well-intentioned maybe, but naive at best and kind of creepy at worst, and brutally murders her with a shard of mirror, rendering the entire subplot about the blackmail a waste of time. Honestly, I mean, I know that certainly it's it's a movie for, first and foremost about Jason murdering teens, but... Given all the ways they could have used this videotape as a MacGuffin to make Charles do something risky that endangered the group, it really seems like they missed a lot of storytelling opportunities. I would have saved Tamara's death until later, when it could be more apparent that she is taking the situation more as an opportunity to deal with her rivals and people who might narc on her, and essentially get her for having bad priorities in a crisis situation. A storm comes up, and Jason murders the bridge crew, sending the ship off course. This is one of those scenes where I feel like the director's deficiencies really come into sharp focus. The way this scene is framed, instead of using the camera to create tension by surprising the audience with Jason's appearance, he simply lets Jason sort of wander into frame in a way, wide shot that makes the whole thing look almost casual. Like just do-do-do-do-do, oh hey, I'm Jason, I've got a, you know, boat hook, I'm gonna stab you with it, is, is that okay? Haddon also films the Admiral's throat slice in a way that makes it very clear that he's not using a real knife. It looks so fake that 
for a few moments, there's no actual slash visible. Charles comes in and immediately comforts Sean. Again, I really don't think this character is nearly as bad as he's made out to be. It's his first instinct is to just tell this kid, I'm so sorry for your loss. But the deck, the deck hand shows up and tells everyone that zombie Jason Voorhees is going to kill them all now. Charles jumps to the entirely sensible, if inaccurate, conclusion that the deckhand is the one committing all the murders, but nobody's listening to him at this point, and Julius convinces everyone to tool up and go looking for the killer. There's a bit of bickering over whether to drop the anchor to help them ride out the storm. Sean tells Rennie to do it, Charles countermands the instruction, and it's really more about Charles feeling like he's being replaced in Rennie's life than anything to do with maritime best practices, although for the record, Charles is more likely to be right than wrong in this case. There's some dispute, and circumstances do play a part, but you really want to be able to ride out the storm by keeping your bow pointed at the waves, and dropping anchor in deep water A will probably not anchor you, and B could damage the, the crank that holds the anchor. Having decided that she wants to leave the ship after all, nearly drowning, drowning and seeing visions of a killer will do that, Rennie asks Sean to take her up to the bridge to see if they can be put off somewhere, but Sean finds his dad dead, along with the rest of the bridge crew, and the ship on the wrong heading instead. Showing surprising nerve given all that, he alerts the passengers to the emergency and orders them to the bridge, then attempts to contact the Coast Guard. But, showing his usual intuition for pulling communications cables just as someone's about to alert the authorities, Jason disables the radio. The crew are on their own. It's, it's really amazing. I mean, he's done that since part four, but I don't even know how he knows what a phone line is. This is obviously part of the same skills he used to track down Alice in part two. We then jump to Eva, who goes looking for Tamara to warn about the emergency. She finds Tamara's body instead shortly before Jason finds her. He chases her into the makeshift disco, which is still going, full music, full lights, and Eva instantly becomes almost comically disoriented by the presence of a disco ball, a few strobes, and some music. She loses track of Jason something like three times in a space that looks to be no more than 20 feet wide with no vision obstructions, eventually getting snuck up on and strangled in a completely open space. Again, I, I don't want to harp on Hedden here, but this is one of those sequences where I think a more experienced director might have departed from the script when it was clear that there was no way to make the scene work as intended, but Hedden simply plows ahead with the plan, and the result is, frankly, kind of laughable. It, it completely has the wrong emotional resonance, because Ava just seems so completely useless here. Julius and the others divvy up the weapons they've scrounged, leading to what I think may be the film's best exchange. Julius, what are you taking? Nothing. But this gun. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just, I love that, that little pause that makes, you know, you think, oh, of course, he needs to be, you know, a big man, and he's just, no, he's, he's gonna shoot somebody, yeah. They split up to investigate, and Wayne anticipates a found footage trope that wouldn't really become a thing for another decade by carrying his video camera with him on his shoulder while he hunts the killer. A burst of steam knocks his glasses off, and he winds up shooting one of the crew members in the chest while his vision is blurred. 
He uses the camera's focus knob to see what he did, and then uses it again to see that Jason is now right in front of him. Jason smacks the camcorder out of his hand, and Wayne gets just far enough to find JJ's body before Jason throws him into the ship's electrics and fries him. This starts a fire, which rapidly spreads throughout the engine room, and Jason, for some reason, sets off the fire alarm? I don't really understand why he would do that, whether he's trying to create panic, whether he legitimately was like, oh shit, guys, you know, I mean, I, I wanted to kill everyone, but I don't want to burn the whole ship up. I mean, that's just rude. That's property damage. I, I don't really follow this here. It's Again, it's another case where I feel like they didn't set up a lot of the events that are happening as having any internal logic. Meanwhile, up on the bridge, Sean gets the ship back on course, Charles puts Rennie back in her room for safekeeping, then arms himself with the flare gun and goes looking for the deckhand, who he still assumes to be the killer. Again, he's wrong, but it's a reasonable assumption to make, and he is doing something decisive to try to help out in the crisis. I do not understand why Charles is so thoroughly and vehemently hated with the to the degree he is. Miles, Sean's friend uh, who never really gets enough screen time to explain why it's ironic that he tries to climb to the high diving platform to escape Jason and is instead thrown onto a set of communications antennas, tries to climb to the high diving platform to escape Jason and is instead thrown onto a set of communications antennas. He was supposed to be a high diver in school, but all of those scenes were cut, so he's just that guy who stands around next to Sean nodding and smiling. Julius finds him shortly before being thrown into the ocean by Jason. Back in her room, Rennie sees another vision of young Jason, and in this one it looks like they suddenly remembered to make an effort to give him makeup like the character we saw in the original movie, but not what much of one. It, it looks like a very shoddy, quick makeup job. Like, they realized halfway during shooting, oh, we needed to be doing more to make him match continuity, but they didn't have time to do reshoots, and they didn't really have a lot of time to do the makeup. Just a guess, I, I, but it, it does not look anything like Savini's really meticulous effort. Uh, just before Jason headbutts his way through the porthole and grabs her by the throat. She's terrified, and she's not acting. Kane Hodder is pulling uh, Daggett directly towards shards of real glass that are sticking out from the break in what, I gotta say, is a major safety oversight. Um, but she reaches for Chekhov's pen and stabs Jason in the eye with it, which gives her enough time to escape. Sean comes to help her, but just then the fuel finally goes up and the boat springs a leak. Colleen gathers the surviving students in the restaurant and tells them to wait for her to return while she launches the lifeboat, and Charles confronts the deckhand in the kitchen only for him to shove Charles aside and run away without a fight. Sean and Rennie discover that the boat is taking on water and head for the lifeboats. Colleen wants to go back to the restaurant for the others, but Sean tells her it's already flooded and they must be dead. So, you know, Colleen is responsible for the deaths of at least some of the graduating class, but Charles is clearly the villain here. The deckhand shows up again, but this time he's got an axe in his back. The last four people on board, uh, that would be Charles, Colleen, Sean, and Rennie, get to the lifeboat, only to be joined by Julius, who it turned out survived being thrown into the water, and Toby, the dog. This is a movie where the dog survives, just in case anyone's worried. 
They row away, eventually finding the island of Manhattan thanks to the digital sextant that Sean got from his dad as a graduation present. Again, the theme of graduation presents are literally either life-saving or life-ending is a major theme of this movie. I'm not even kidding. It's the through line for a lot of this story. They dock at a harbor, and within literally seconds of their arrival, Jason surfaces and climbs out of the water to continue his pursuit. Forget about spree killing. Someone should hire this man for the Olympic swim team. The five survivors go looking for the police, only to be mugged by two street criminals who we saw in the montage at the beginning. Unsurprisingly and depressingly, both are coded as Latino. Toby flees in the confusion, and the two men kidnap and drug Rennie with the intention of raping her. Now, I think this actually may be the first overt and deliberate depiction of sexual assaults in the series. There's been plenty of scenes where consent has been handled badly because the film was made in a, an era when it was taken less seriously, but I don't believe we've ever had an open and purposeful attempted rape scene before now, and I genuinely think it's a mistake to add one at this point. Sex in the Friday the 13th series, well, it's portrayed as generally dangerous because you may be stabbed and murdered by a madman, it's still generally portrayed as a positive loving act, and it, this is a weird time to suddenly ring in sexual peril as a narrative device, and it's it's creepy and, and not in a good way. But before they can do anything, Jason shows up and kills them instead, jabbing a heroin syringe right through the body of one and out the other side. The other one shoots Jason repeatedly, but of course in a fight between human and inhuman monsters, there's only going to be one winner. He bashes the second criminal's head against a pipe and goes off in pursuit of Rennie. Which, I've talked about this a little before, but this is another thing that's very weird about this movie. Normally Jason is portrayed as this mindless predator attacking and killing anyone who gets near him in a sort of overdeveloped fight-or-fight response. But in this film, he wanders through whole rooms full of people and completely ignores them to focus on Rennie and Sean. Even when someone does confront him, apart from these two criminals, he's content to just shove them aside or intimidate them with his presence and continue his pursuit. He's completely fixated on the survivors of the Lazarus, which makes a certain degree of sense if you buy into the idea that he's been resurrected to kill the teenagers of Crystal Lake, but not in any other context, and certainly not in the context of the series as a whole, where Jason is very much just someone who kills everyone who's nearby. The others split up to look for the cops. Julius finds a payphone, but Jason finds Julius. He pursues the young man to the top of a building, and with no other options, yep, you guessed it, Julius decides to box Jason. Jason basically lets him wear himself out in what could be the most extreme rope-a-dope tactic ever. By the way, this was apparently a bear of a scene to film for Kane Hodder, because he was heavily padded, but he just told Julius, or the actor who plays Julius, go ahead and just hit me. And they did several takes of this scene, and it was, you know, he's throwing 20, 30 punches a take. Hodder was really beat up by the time this finished, but he is a method actor, he is a trooper, he is the stuntman stuntman, and he was not about to be bothered by that kind of injury. Once Julius is tired out, uh, Jason retaliates by decapitating him with a single punch. Now, 
it does seem like Julius wears himself out a little quicker than you might expect here for someone who boxes semi-professionally, but he has been swimming and rowing all night. I think he acquits himself pretty well, even though this is yet another problematic example of a black man being jobbed to prop up Jason's toughness. The decapitation effect isn't particularly believable, but I did like the little touch of Julius having bruised and bloodied hands when he waits for the final blow. Rennie finds Sean, and together they find the others. Charles got in touch with a very stereotypically Irish cop, and when I say very stereotypical, I mean he doesn't even sound like Irish cop, he sounds like Irish leprechaun. He's like, oh, and it's a fine telltale you folks have been telling. He sounds like he got just off the boat, but he sounds like that boat is Louisitania. Uh, the cop offers to take them somewhere safe, but of course the movie's not going to end that easily. Julius's severed head is waiting for them in the cop car, and Jason co grabs the cop and murders him when he tries to call for backup. Rennie scrambles into the front seat and commandeers the car to run over Jason, but she's still drugged out of her mind from earlier, and she slams into a traffic barrier, believing herself to be ramming a young Jason. The car explodes, and Colleen is killed in the crash. And in the flames, Rennie sees another vision, one of herself as a child with her uncle out on Crystal Lake. She doesn't know how to swim in this flashback, so why is she out in a boat without a life jacket? For that matter, why is Charles out in a boat without a life jacket? Even if you know how to swim, you should always wear a life jacket when you go boating, please. And Charles has decided to use some quote-unquote tough love. He first tries to scare her into trying to learn how to swim with the legend of Jason, claiming that Jason is wading down in the water to grab little kids who don't know how to swim, and then when she says that he's a liar, he throws her in the water bodily. Now, this would be dangerous and abusive even without the spectral zombie whatever child waiting to drag her under. You should never, ever do this to anyone who does not know how to swim. You should really never do it to anyone who does know how to swim, but this is not going to help her learn how to swim. This is just going to create a fear of water, which it in fact does. But when she, it gets worse because Jason does in fact grab her and pull her under and Charles has to swim in and grab her himself. Now this is the scene I was thinking of when I said that I think I understand why the payoff doesn't work for any of the supernatural angle to this, which is that it's supposed to be a revelation that Rennie survived an encounter with spectral zombie whatever Jason as a child, and that ever since Jason has been stalking her and by extension everyone around her, and she's the one he really wants. But because they conflate this with this other big emotional revelation that the reason she has the fear of open water is because her uncle, who is her legal guardian, who has been so protective of her for so long, endangered her life in an attempt to try to toughen her up and has been atoning for it ever since by correcting with overprotectiveness. It de-emphasizes the fact that she literally met Jason and the two of them have a history together and that's why she's seeing all of these visions of him, and emphasizes instead the familial aspect of it. And that would work, except for, again, that's not really what the story is about, and the payoff, spoilers for about two seconds from now, is going to be Charles gets killed by Jason. So I think that 
the director needed to focus this a little bit tighter instead of making it about Rennie and Charles it should have been about Rennie and Jason and because it doesn't that's a key element to the movie that is obscured right when it needs to be very very clear. Back in the present day Rennie confronts Charles with the information she learned from her vision and Charles doesn't really have any answer to his to her accusations. He sort of tries to stammer out something about how he did save her which is not exactly a defense like oh well yes I tried to drown you but I did pull you out afterwards. He's clearly bearing a lot of guilt over his actions and doesn't really have an answer. And, you know, it would be an interesting movie to go on from there, but we don't really have time to unpack any of this because Jason gets right back up after Rennie and Sean leave. He drowns Charles in a barrel of filthy water. Richmond, a real trooper, did this stunt in camera, and he said it was not pleasant. The water was cold. They had added all sorts of goop and chemicals to it to give it the impression of being filthy. And he did it anyway, and more power to him. And Jason then heads off after the last teens of Crystal Lake. Jason catches up with him right after they share a kiss that really confirms my suspicions that Rennie is intended to be non-heterosexual. It's it, There's no chemistry in this kiss at all. I'm not complaining, but there isn't. And they race into the subway to avoid him. But Jason catches up again, and they have to go car to car to avoid him, finally pulling the emergency brake and fleeing into the tunnels. Again, it's surprising that Jason doesn't seem even remotely interested in any of the passengers, given what we've seen of Jason in the previous, you know, six installments. But this conceptualization of Jason is a revenant, not a mindless killer. And it just, that doesn't really connect because the film doesn't, do the work to make you understand why he would be going after these teens specifically. But as it happens, he just walks right by everyone in the subway, and it looks very strange. Sean pushes Jason onto the third rail when he exits the stopped subway car, and we do get a very impressive display of pyrotechnics as he's electrocuted. But of course, that doesn't stop him either, and he follows them into Times Square and there's this strangely beautiful shot, it's honestly the best shot of the whole movie, of Jason emerging and looking around in something kind of akin to bemused wonder at this whole world that he was never allowed to experience. It's an odd little moment of pathos for this killer, monster, zombie, murder storm, this just sense of, oh, this is the world. Wow. But of course it doesn't last, and we're right back to the chase. The couple flee past a group of street toughs with a boombox, which we saw in the montage at the beginning, and boomboxes had become kind of ubiquitous as the, sub, as the quick symbolic depiction of person who does not appreciate or consider the people around them while they are listening to music. This is, you know, this is basically very similar to the shot from Star Trek IV The Voyage Home where there's someone listening to a boombox on the bus and Spock nerve pinches him to knock him out. It's just assumed that if you have a boombox in public, you are kind of a jerk. Uh, Jason kicks it out of the way in what has to be the most gift moment in the entire movie. The Tufts threaten Jason, but instead of fighting back or killing them, he just raises his mask to reveal his rotting visage, and they decide that discretion is the better part of valor. Uh, 
again, I hate to harp on it here, but any other Jason movie would have turned this into at least a minor bloodbath. Sean and Rennie run into a diner and ask the waitress to call the police, but of course this is New York, so she's utterly indifferent to their plight right up until Jason literally crashes through the door. The short order cook, played by an uncredited Ken Kersinger, who would go on to play Jason himself in Freddy vs. Jason, tries to play bouncer, but instead becomes, um, bounced. Off the mirror, behind the counter, onto the floor. Sean and Rennie run into the alley behind the diner, but they're out of places to go and Jason is closing in. Desperate, they head into the sewers through an open manhole, but Jason pursues them even there. Trying to lose him, they run into a sanitation worker who tells them that they need to follow him out quickly because, quote, This sewer floods up with toxic waste every night at midnight. He is remarkably blasé about that. <laughs> now, this was a year before the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, but it was well after the rise of the TMNT phenomenon, and it would be easy to imagine that this was a reference to one of the biggest crazes of the late 80s. You've got the sewers, you've got people in the sewers, you've got ooze or toxic goop, you know, it's, it's where a lot of people's heads certainly went. But really, the turtles themselves were just a satirical take on two other popular stories that Eastman and Laird, their creators, conflated together. The 1984 horror movie Chud, which was a very serious take on this concept about homeless people uh, taking shelter in the sewers when the official shelters ran out of space and getting turned into monsters by toxic waste, I do plan on covering that movie at some point, and we'll get a lot more into it then. And the late 70s, early 80s X-Men characters known as the Morlocks, who were mutants that chose to make the sewers their home rather than deal with a world that feared and hated them. Both would have been familiar to Eastman and Laird, who were parodying a lot of the X-Men and Daredevil books at the time. There's a reason they are Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And Chud, at least, would have probably been familiar to Hedden, as would the 1987 TV series Beauty and the Beast, which featured a young Linda Hamilton and a young Ron Perlman as protectors of a secret sanctuary of sewer dwellers. She was the beauty, he was the beast. But really, the idea of the city sewers as an inverted version of the urban domain inhabited by the people that society wants to pretend don't exist but really, the idea of the city sewers as an inverted version of the urban domain inhabited by the people that society wants to pretend don't exist is one that's got such terrific symbolic power and cultural currency that it's practically common in dirt, as dirt, and ideas around it cross-pollinate back and forth all over the place, especially in genre fiction. And not just people, but... Anything that society wants to repress, secrets, pollution, monsters, anything that we try to get rid of winds up down in the sewers, and either it comes bubbling back up at some point, or the heroes have to descend down into that underbelly in order to achieve their goals. It's a very Freudian concept, this idea of the sewer as the id of the city, and uh, you see it everywhere. We could talk about alligators in the sewers, we could talk about the monster in the host, we could talk about the penguin in Batman Returns, who's literally finding people's secrets down in the sewers and using them to blackmail him. And the main point is that this was so prevalent that there is no way we were not getting a reference to both sewers and toxic waste, even though this sewer worker, like I say, he just seems remarkably cool with the idea of the city being flooded with the stuff nightly. 
Presumably he means, you know, human waste and not the byproducts of nuclear reactors or chemical plants that most people mean when they use the term. But then again, we do see barrels of the stuff lying around. So, you know, I guess New York City is just flooding with lethal chemicals every night and nobody cares. Whatever he means, he clearly has a sense of urgency as he leads them out. But, unfortunately for him, Jason finds them yet again and bludgeons the poor man to death with a pipe wrench. He knocks Sean cold by shoving him against the wall and is about to finish him off, but Rennie grabs his attention with the sanitation worker's flashlight and draws him into pursuing her instead. She says, you know, you didn't get me in the water and you won't get me now, which, again, isn't quite the payoff that it should be, it doesn't feel like they've got any particular connection. He's not going after her because he recognizes her as Rennie, the kid that he nearly drowned. He's going after her because she's shining a flashlight in his eyes and saying, come get me. She leads him away, then finds a barrel of toxic waste, the real stuff, almost cartoonishly green and goopy, and throws it into Jason's face, causing him real pain for the first time we've seen since part four. Jason pulls off his mask in agony to reveal a makeup design that, honestly, it looks unfinished. It looks like they managed to put on the base coat of paint over the latex and maybe get some of the white on the center of the face, but had to get it out under the cameras before they could do any real detail work. It's honestly a bit of a disaster compared to the Savini makeups in part one and part four. It's the sort of thing that would lead contestants to apologize on face-off, and it's kind of a shame that it's the climax to the movie. I, I don't want to suggest that every makeup has to be photorealistic or naturalistic, but this doesn't seem to be going for a different aesthetic. It just seems rushed, like they ran out of time. Jason staggers after Rennie, clearly injured by the toxic goop, but she's already doubled back and woken up Sean. The two of them find a ladder and climb up it, and although the grate on top won't open, it does get them just high enough to avoid the flood of toxic waste coursing through the sewers. Jason stares at it in terror, clearly reminded of his childhood drowning, but he can't climb the ladder after him before he's claimed by the sea of poisonous gunk. The last we see is his monstrous body melting away to reveal the child he once was. Or again, once wasn't, because he looks nothing like Jason did in part one. Incidentally, one of the wisest cuts they made to this scene was, originally you were actually going to see young Jason inside older Jason's mouth, reaching and trying to get help, which A, doesn't make any sense, and B just looked comical. I'm really glad they cut it. It's not clear if Jason's, younger Jason, that is, is dead, or if he's just gone full star baby and has regressed to infancy, but Sean and Rennie don't seem interested in finding out. They emerge back onto the surface, are reunited with Toby the dog, and the final Paramount installment of the series go comes to an end with a reprise of Darkest Side of the Night playing over the closing credits. And you know, at this point, I've talked already about how this is part of a box set, how I'll be keeping all eight movies together because they don't really separate well in this particular setting, but this is probably not one I would keep. It feels like a first-time director experimenting with a number of different ideas, and as a result it feels very jumbled. Nothing really comes together, there's no focus. 
uh, and and most of the characters are pretty much they're they're not given any dimensionality, which is a shame because I think that there's something that could be done with this idea. I especially wish they'd had the time and budget to film more in Manhattan, uh, or to sp- film more in the cruise ship. I you could split this up as two movies: the first one, Jason on a cruise ship; the second one. You know, if the first one ends with Jason climbing out and seeing the skyline of Manhattan, and the second one is just a full-on rampage through the city, with Jason becoming even bigger than the Big Apple in a metaphorical sense. But, you know, that that's hindsight being twenty twenty, probably. In any event, it's probably one I won't revisit, but I'll be keeping it because I've got the box set. Um, and if you want to talk about the potential for a two-part Jason in Manhattan movie or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror and on Tumblr as at HalfPriceHorror. I'm also on Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror, no spaces on any of those, where you can see reviews of all the movies I've watched for the podcast and a list of everything I intend to tackle in future episodes. I love hearing from people. You can also rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, I was planning on doing the premature burial. I really was. But I've said in the past that I'm trying to recreate that old UHF station aesthetic. And one of the key aspects of that aesthetic was that if they did get a hold of a very recent movie, they'd show that sucker in primetime as soon as possible while people were still interested in it. So if I find a copy of a movie I already can't wait to talk about that's just come out on video, like, say, Psycho Goreman, it's jumping the queue. Plus, Mimi threatened to bury me alive if I didn't talk about it, and you don't mess with Mimi. So next time, Psycho Goreman. See you then.